1: from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to tell you a few exciting things that we've got coming up. So from today, all of our Kofi supporters will have access to additional exclusive content. Each week, they'll see the written critique provided by Carly, Cece or myself to one of the writers whose work will appear on the podcast. And those who support us on Kofi on a monthly basis will get access to even more additional critiques from that week's Episode. Now, the written critiques offer additional information that isn't discussed on the podcast. It's additional observations, perhaps line edits, etc., that every writer can learn from. Now, if you want to support us on Ko-fi, head to the podcast page on my website, biancamaray.com, and there's a sign-up button there. And then, as well, we're running a fundraiser for Kaleto Mapai, a South African author who's been a guest on the podcast. Coletto is an enormously talented writer who's been accepted to prestigious grad schools across the world to do her master's in creative writing. Now, Writers of Color face huge barriers to entry in publishing, which is why we need more own voices stories. We're raising funds to help empower Kalitso to pursue her dreams and to help reduce some of those barriers to entry. Now, for every twenty dollars that you donate to this amazing cause, you get one ticket into the draw to have a full manuscript evaluation done by me. Once we reach the halfway mark in our fundraising efforts, I will do the first draw for a full manuscript evaluation and once we reach our final goal I will do a second draw for another full manuscript evaluation. So if you would like to support Coletto again go to the podcast page on the website biancamaray.com and you can make your donation there. And then finally don't forget about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat in January. We have an amazing Lineup of world renowned writing experts, including Lisa Cron from Story Genius, Jessica Brody, Save the Cat writes a novel, Courtney Mom from Before and After the Book Deal, Valerie Francis, who's an accredited editor in the Story Grid method. We also have Sally Kim, who's one of the most amazing editors in the world, who'll be chatting with all of us. And we have Britt Bennett, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Vanishing Half. This is not a lineup you want to miss. The retreat will have 16 hours of jam-packed content, which is the equivalent of signing up for an eight-week writing course where each class is two hours per week. But even if you signed up for a class like that, you'd have one instructor as opposed to industry experts whose brains you'll be able to pick after their presentations. And then besides the fabulous guests, we'll be offering writing software discounts to our delegates as well as the chance to win amazing prizes and then we've set up the Shit No One Tells You About Writing book club which CC will be running four times a year in which we'll not just be reading a book together but unpacking it as writers in terms of elements of craft and those who sign up as delegates will automatically get access to that book club. So if you're interested in that go to the website it's under the courses and retreats page and sign up for that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Before we traipse our way into today's episode, I am going to put on my strict teacher's voice and say a few things. So we are getting a ton of submissions for the Books with Hooks segment, which is absolutely wonderful. We love seeing all of them. However, one out of every five submissions is in the wrong format. It's either a PDF when we asked for Word or it's a folder I can't even open or the pages are not formatted, double-spaced like we've asked, or what happens is the writer submits to us, and a day later, they email me, please, 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 I've made changes. Can you please rather accept a new submission? And while in the past, I have accepted resubmissions or more polished work, it's just becoming too admin-intensive. And we had an incident with an author who submitted revised work, and we accidentally, my fault, read her first query on the podcast and of course she was upset about this because she wanted a revised work to be read and it's just too cumbersome to try and keep track of all of that so please can I ask you before you submit make sure that your query is as polished as it can be it's in the right format it conforms to what we've asked for and you are not going to rewrite it and in a week ask us to please resubmit again Right. So that is my strict school teacher's voice. Now, the great news is we're starting today's episode with the new Books with Hooks submissions. So, for those of you who submitted, you had to pick Carly or Cece to submit to, or to guest agents who will be coming up on the podcast in the future. So, we're going to try and get to four queries every week two for Carly and two for Cece. We'll see how that goes and give us some feedback. Let us know if you're liking this new format because it won't be two agents discussing one query. It's going to be one agent discussing one query. So let's see how it goes. Carly,
0: why don't you kick us off? Dear Carly, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and read that you're interested in memoirs that read like a novel. So I'm submitting my manuscript, Woman at the Bottom of the World, for your consideration. Complete at 79,000 words, this unapologetically feminist memoir takes place in Antarctica, the mysterious seventh continent whose narrative thus far has been dominated by men. W-A-T-B-O-T-W is the story of a young woman misled to believe silence is power via intergenerational trauma, but overcomes this amid the extreme environmental and misogynist challenges presented by Antarctica. W-A-T-B-O-T-W explores a complex maternal relationship a la Wild Game by Adrian Brodeur, while fans of Hulu Shrill will enjoy the plucky plus-size protagonist who provides unflinching glimpses into an underbelly of society like Stephanie Land's maid. At her mother's urging, Redacted takes a job as a janitor at a remote research station in Antarctica, leaving behind a secret queer relationship with her best friend, in an American economy without room for newly graduated millennials who majored in liberal arts. Bewildered at first by the frozen climate, grueling job, and debaucherous party culture, Redacted settles in as she develops new friendships and love interests. This new life is threatened when she encounters the dark side of a world populated by 70% men, rife with sexual harassment and assault. Things are further complicated when her mother arrives to work alongside her. But at some point in the ever-present howling of the catabatic winds, Redacted begins to find her own voice and uses it when she needs it most. After receiving my BA in Global Humanities and Religions from the University of Montana and working in Antarctica, I settled in Denver, where I reside with my husband, our five-year-old daughter, and a slew of pets. I'm an emerging writer, currently working with an editor at the New York Times on a personal essay with the same topic matter as the manuscript." I own a small design studio called Redacted and have amassed over 47,000 followers on Instagram, which has taught me tactical marketing and social media skills. When I'm not hiking, cooking, or making my own clothes, I'm working on my next book. I'd be thrilled to send you the full manuscript. Thank you for your time and consideration, Redacted. P.S. Content warning. This manuscript contains descriptions of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and heavy alcohol use. So I really loved this title, Women at the Bottom of the World. I think this is an amazing, amazing title. So kudos to you. I think that's great. Um, I also really liked the line, mysterious seventh continent, whose narrative thus far has been dominated by men. I think that probably goes without saying in our patriarchal culture and scientists and exploration and colonization and all those other things. But I really love that you kind of spelled that out. I thought that was great. One thing I didn't love in this query letter was the short form of the title, shortening this to W A T B O D W. It's just, it's very casual and it's something like I would do with my clients in emails when I'm emailing back and forth with them, but it's not something that I would suggest anybody does in a query letter. So don't do that little short form thing in the pitch. You have a great title. Please use your great title. We have three comps here, Wild Game, Shrill, and Maid. I don't think we need all three. I would just say two is enough. But overall, I really don't have anything to say in terms of critique. This is super interesting. Clearly, there's a lot of conflict here in terms of an actual drama and trauma. Also, you know, this mother relationship situation. So really, I think this is fantastic. And I'm sure as this person knows, this this Instagram following, obviously it's based on this design studio. But clearly, I mean, if you have 47,000 followers on Instagram, you know how to market yourself and, and you kind of understand that world. And and social media is unfortunately a huge part of the way that authors do word of mouth marketing these days. So I really think this is a a super strong query. And I thought this was really well done.
1: So Kali, will you tell us a little bit about those opening pages and then give us your
0: review of them? So we start in Denver and it's not initially clear where we are, but it's kind of, it's something that happens a lot with memoirs is kind of this, this prologue, right? This kind of entry into this world. So we're starting with a little prologue called part one prologue 2020 is the year. And we have a moment with our main character and her daughter, some families such as her husband and her mom. They're all at a park kind of just hanging out, spending some time together. We get the sense that um, the mother is just visiting and was just spending a bit of time with her before she goes back to Antarctica. And that's our prologue. Another thing that happens in the prologue is the the main character here, the the daughter character. She says to her mom, "I want to talk about the incident. You know, I want to talk about what happened." You know, as she says, "It's about Antarctica. It's about what happened to me ten years ago." My mom's eyebrows lower and reach for one another, a drawbridge closing across her darkening face. So clearly. Again, we know this from the pitch, but we know that obviously something dramatic happens to her um, when she's there, presumably something like sexual assault, um, sexual violence in that category. And the mom knows about it. So what I didn't like about this prologue was that it felt like it was more for the sake of the reader than it was for the story itself. It pulled me out of the story a little bit when it's, you know, this this really, um, you know, back and forth conversation with the mother in a way that really... I understand how difficult it is in memoir or even narrative nonfiction when you're trying to recraft a conversation that happened. Clearly, you didn't have a tape recorder with you at that moment. So, we know this isn't a line by line. You know, we know exactly what happens here, of course. So, this is like a recreation of this story, how this happened for the sake of the reader. So, I felt like it was a little bit clinical. I just, it really pulled me out of the story a little bit. So, I would just try to find a more natural way. And I think this person's super talented. My mom's eyebrows lower. And reach for one another, and I, I just really thought it was is super well done. And then we hop over to a uh, chapter one, and we go into the past. Really, my main critique for this is this is incredibly interesting. There's a lot going on here, but a lot of this is what's happening to other people in this this girl's relationship with her mother, as opposed to I think what's happening with her. And I know we're gonna get there. It, it suggests that you know there is a reckoning that's gonna happen in terms of coming into her own. But so far, I feel like this is this book isn't about the girl. This book is about the mom. So that's kind of my main critique, but this is really, really interesting.
1: I think her writing's so good.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think yeah. it's really great. On the yeah. line
1: level, it's so good. I mean, just that the eyebrows closed like a drawbridge, you know, her descriptions are amazing. All right. Thanks so much, Carly. Right, Cece, Well, you move on to the second query letter?
2: Let's do this. So the query letter begins with trigger warning, unwanted pregnancy. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you for your insightful podcast. I've learned so much from you all, and I love tuning in every week to soak up everything you say like a sponge. I also love connecting with Cece on Twitter with her questions and watching Carly's funny Instagram reels. I'm seeking representation for My Blue Crayon, an 85,000 word women's fiction novel about friendship and life at 50, in which Sarah and her lifelong friend, Emily, head out to a women's retreat in Spain to find themselves. When secrets, lies, and betrayals come out around the campfire, they discover they never really knew each other at all. It's a coming-of-age novel that will appeal to fans of the intense friendship in Eleanor Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend, and more recently, Britt Bennett's The Mothers. Aged 18, Sarah made the biggest decision of her life, not to go through with a pregnancy. Now on the eve of her 50th birthday, she's regretting it. Sarah has never married, has no children, and a career she hates. Her best friend, Emily, lived the life she'd always dreamed of, married to James with a beautiful daughter and a comfortable life. The retreat is run by Emily's old university friend, Sky, and we learn that all three women were connected to James aged 18. Sky lost her virginity to him in fresher's week. He had a deep connection with Sarah, and they slept together just before she went to work in Spain for a year. And Emily made her moves on him knowing her best friend really liked him. Now, the friends share their stories with four other women around the campfire. The others all have things they are healing from. Abusive relationships, a broken back, not having a purpose in life, justifying their career for children. For Emily, it's grief after James's death. For Sarah, it's shame and regret for her past decision. When the truth comes out, it threatens to destroy their lifelong friendship. Sarah could have had the life she dreamed of if it wasn't for Emily's deception. Is their love for one another strong enough to forgive each other? I've been a journalist for more than 25 years, published in local and national media. I came up with this idea after not being able to find books about people like me and my friends, who are all in midlife. I don't want menopausal stereotypes. I want a book that delves into all the important decisions we've made and have yet to make, especially around relationships, children, and careers. I have an online audience totaling around 13,000 with my day job as a media coach, and I've just started an MA in creative writing at Trent University. I can be found driving around in an old Chevrolet as I've downsized everything in my life to fund my year out as I concentrate on getting my book published. Thank you for your time and consideration. Yvonne Radley. All right. I struggled with this query letter for a few reasons. One, there was a bit of a readability issue. I do recommend that the author make a, like do a pass in terms of checking spelling and grammar and names. So for example, I'm fairly certain that you don't mean Eleanor Ferrante? that's not the author's name. So I I would just fix that to Elena. And I would also capitalize the titles. And by capitalize, I mean, use all caps, You know, the mothers and my brilliant friend. So I do think in terms of readability, this could use a bit of a pass. I also was confused about the points of view, how many points of view we're going to get in this novel. And I don't need that answer always in a query letter, but in this case, it did give me pause. So I would be reading on to find out about the points of view. I love that the author mentioned that she loves my Twitter questions. I also Love my Twitter questions and I love Carly's Instagram reels. So, thank you for everyone for following us. That's really kind of you. In terms of the plot, which is the thing that I always care about in Query Letters, I'm struggling because it seems like one of the protagonists, perhaps even the main protagonist, so she had an abortion at age 18. And then, according to her mind state, right, like her state of mind, this has been the thing she did that kind of ruined her life. So, on a political level, I struggle with that because women's reproductive freedoms, reproductive freedoms of anyone with the uterus, in fact, really, really matters to me. And does this mean that I can't read a book where the character has a different political view than me? In fact, perhaps she doesn't. Perhaps it's just very specific to this protagonist. No, it does not mean that. I welcome all different views. But to ignore the power of position in a in a novel is to ignore the power that books have, that stories have. And so I would go into this cautiously. Um, I'm sharing this because I think it's important that everyone know this about me and in my opinion, anyone really who reads because we all have passions. So that is one thing that I wanted to talk about. And then the other thing, and this is really the most important thing, is this. I don't agree with Dexter. Dexter, the serial killer who kills people. I don't agree with that, but I understand it. I understand the logic. I connect on an intellectual level with people who do bad things, things I don't agree with. This person is telling me that Emily, like Sarah could have had the life she dreamt of if it wasn't for Emily's deception. No, she couldn't. That, that doesn't make any sense. The fact if she had had the baby at 18 that doesn't mean that her life would look exactly like Sarah's that's not how lives work. So I struggle to connect intellectually with the protagonist and that is a big 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 barrier for me. Something to think about, I would still have I kept kept on reading because I love the themes here, but it's something to think about when when writing your query letter. This is a very long query letter and there isn't a lot of plot, most of it is emotion.
1: Awesome, Cece. Right, will you tell us about those opening pages? Okay. So we begin with a prologue that takes place in 1988, Sarah
2: is essentially at the hospital, right? Like, we know based on the query letter that she's about to get an abortion. This is also, you know, made clear through the pages. And she calls her friend, Emily. It's her 19th birthday. Emily thinks that Sarah is traveling through Spain, like picking grapes, working in bars. But no, Sarah is actually lying to her. To everyone. Her family can't afford to send her to school. And so she just made up the story about traveling around the world. This to me makes her very interesting protagonist, by the way. So I very much like this. And when they do have a phone call, so Sarah kind of picks up on the fact that Emily might like James. And she's like, Well, you know, I like him, right? I'm paraphrasing here. And she was like, Well, how much can you possibly like him? You're off gallivanting through through Europe or whatever, you know, through Spain. So so we do get the sense that, you know, this is gonna be a tense thing. And then we have chapter one, where Sarah is age. 29. So this is 2019. And this is not a scene. She's just she's thinking about her life. She's thinking about the day she told Craig, who obviously is her fiance, that she wanted to cancel the wedding. So it's more her thinking about a scene as opposed to a scene. I would suggest for chapter one, start with what's actually happening. Don't start with the character thinking about what happened. This is an important distinction that actually makes a huge difference in a novel. A good way, a good trick to do this is imagine this. Could you film your first scene? You have to be able to film your first scene. A camera needs to be able to capture it. And yes, as discussed before, the main difference between a book and a movie is that in a book, you get to capture someone's interiority, their inner life. And so you add that, but you should still be able to film this. You can film this not in one scene, right? You'd have to film the person thinking and then have a flashback right away almost because it would be her memory, like remembering this. So that's not, that's not my recommendation for chapter one. And in terms of the prologue, I want to say that the author did a really great job of adding sensorial details, things like the strong stench of disinfectant in the room and also emotion. So when she calls, we get small things like the phone rings, you know, she never, it it always takes so long to ring. And so there is, there is a lot to work with here. I, however, and this is, this is a me thing. It's, it's people should do whatever they want. The head hopping drove me bananas. Like I didn't know whose head we were in. Sometimes it was James. The other times it was Sarah. And then it was Emily. And I get that it's intentional and that it's a fair device. People do whatever they want. But for me, head hopping so many people in a prologue it just it's too distracting
1: so that's something to think about um yeah those are my notes awesome cc thank you okay thanks so much cc carly will you uh, read the next query letter for us
0: dear carly i've learned so much from listening to the podcast especially from the thoughtful and kind analysis of queries and first pages in the books with hooks segment although your current hashtag mswl doesn't list picture books you have indicated that you have represented some picture books in the past i would love the opportunity to hear your feedback on my query and pages for octopus is blue a picture book manuscript complete at about 500 words because it explores feelings of sadness as well as healing through friendship octopus is blue might appeal to fans of baby tomorrow by charlotte aguil and anna ramirez gonzalez and ruby finds a worry tom percival When Octopus mysteriously loses his ability to change colors, he thinks he has lost everything. His spark is gone. Octopus only wants to hide in a rock. But his friends and some hungry sharks nearby have other ideas. I am a member of, I am a member of, SCBWI Storyteller Academy, the 12 by 12 picture book challenge and inked voices. I have several picture book manuscripts available for review. I am an attorney and a mom to two sweet rascals, an impish energetic first grader and a pup who doesn't realize he isn't human. Thank you for your time and consideration. SS bracket contact information. I thought this was a really adorable query letter. I know we haven't done a lot of picture books on the podcast. And I think this was great. I do represent occasional children's projects. So one off in terms of YA and picture books. I don't do any middle grade, though. So don't get any ideas about middle grade. But I was really glad to see this picture book query. Um, I have represented them in the past. And I also have two small children. So I read a lot of picture books. I thought this was really, really sweet. I really personally enjoy picture books for children. Picture books are the age in terms of about like the three to seven age category where we're exploring real feelings. You know, we're dealing with sadness and emotions and picture books are that way that kids can actually see things reflected in them. I think children get the messaging a lot that just smile, put on a happy face, everything's fine, right? But to them, like there's a lot of real big feelings going on. So I really liked that this was entertaining, some feelings of sadness. One of my favorite stories to read to my boys is Grumpy Monkey which is great. It's just about, you know, sometimes you're just having a bad day. And, and I like that this also explores that we might just be feeling sad today and, and just being sad today is okay. And we, we sit with our feelings and we feel them. So I, I really like this. I didn't really have any major critiques. My only big critique here, and I'll get to this also a little bit in the pages, was sometimes in picture books, things can either be too on the nose or too metaphorical. And I think that this author is kind of dancing with that. Like, how do we talk about sadness? And so this talks about this octopus mysteriously losing his ability to change colors. And so is... Like, is this supposed to be, I almost wonder if this is too metaphorical for children. And also a lot of times picture books are for adults, right? Because adults do the buying, adults do the reading because these kids can't read them, right? And so a lot of times the little jokes, um, I mentioned grumpy monkey, a lot of times the jokes are actually for adults. And so with this, I'm just wondering if this is just too subtle and this mysteriously loses his ability to change colors is obviously talking about this idea that this octopus can't access the full range of their emotions in terms of the colors, but this is you're just saying colors, right? The kids don't actually understand. I don't. I don't think the kids are going to figure this out. So that's kind of my my main note there. And again, I'll talk to that a little bit more in the pages as well.
1: Awesome, Carly. All right. The uh, question I have is: If someone's pitching a picture book, do they have to include the illustrations, or is that something that comes later once the publisher buys the book? Oh, that's such a
0: good question. So. You can do either or. If you are an illustrator and you want to illustrate your book, you can put together a little portfolio. But the manuscript actually stands alone. It's actually better just to pitch your manuscript as a manuscript because the publisher is going to ultimately choose who they think is the best illustrator based on who's available, who they like, who they think fits the tone and the voice of the actual story. So you shouldn't hire an illustrator. It's okay just to be a picture book author as a a standalone. Yeah.
1: Awesome, because I can imagine that must be quite expensive as well, especially if you don't end up selling the book. Okay,
0: could you tell us about those opening pages? Yeah, so it's I almost want to read you the whole thing because it, it's short and sweet and cute, but I will try to summarize it as best I can. So basically, um, as you guys got from the query letter, we have an octopus. And this octopus is I I'll read you some lines because I think this is so cute. So it says it was easy to pick what octopus loved best. Sure, eight arms were handy, three hearts kept him afloat, and nine brains helped him escape sticky situations. I thought that was lovely. Just the like I did I don't know if I knew that octopus had three hearts. Like, how adorable is that? And in terms of children feeling huge emotions i just really love like sometimes they probably feel like they have three hearts right like beating out of their chest with so many big feelings so i honestly just thought that was adorable and then we get into this but nothing beats his rainbow octopus could be any color at any time his rainbow entertained his friend and this is where i'm trying to get at the metaphor of this because the lines here are but nothing beats his rainbow octopus could be any color at any time. His rainbow entertained his friends. And so we're not actually explaining to the children what the rainbow means or represents. And again, I don't like hitting kids over the head with things either. Again, because adults are reading this. We don't want to hit adults over the head either. But I really want to get the sense of what about this rainbow should we be feeling as the reader? And there's some really cute lines here about octopus couldn't imagine life without his rainbow until the day everything went wrong. And he just started feeling all these feelings. You know, his hearts felt heavier than usual, which is adorable, like multiple hearts. How sweet is that? His brains, plural, couldn't agree on what to do next. Again, adorable. But then, yeah, it's it's kind of a little bit confusing in terms of what you want the, the reader to take away from this. And it ends up that the octopus rescues his friends with his long arms because he's feeling like, what's special about me if I don't have my rainbow? And he rescues his friends away from these sharks. And I don't want to oversimplify it because I really do feel like this is so adorable and and wonderful on the line level but I really just want to be a little bit more clear about this metaphor and I know it's so hard because there's so limited words in a picture book right like you're writing a poem here it's so hard but I would just encourage you to kind of really nail down a little bit more clearly for both the child and the adult what you want this metaphor to be
1: wonderful thanks Carly okay Cece why don't we go to the last query letter all
2: right let's do this Dear Cece Lira, I'm seeking representation for my debut novel, All Living Things, complete at 72,000 words. This dual POV adult upmarket story would appeal to fans of dark surrealist fiction like Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore and voicey magical realism like Amy Bender's The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. I thought it might also appeal to you, given your interest in dark stories involving dysfunctional families. Trigger warnings suicide, miscarriage. Krista Blanche moves into an old historic home in Barnesville, Georgia, with her husband Greg and their toddler Maggie to accommodate their growing family. After repainting, Krista notices a mysterious spot on the living room wall. Although first believed to be mold, Greg realizes the spot is something else entirely when he's unable to scrub it off. Things get weirder when he touches the spot's edge, causing an intense emotional reaction that shoots up his arm and into his chest. It's a rush he can't explain, steadily driving him to obsession. Curiosity drives Krista to touch the spot too, but the intensity causes her to fall from a ladder onto her pregnant belly. After being told that she lost the baby and going under for surgery, she awakens the doctor saying, miracle, her baby boy survived. Krista wrestles with her sanity and mistrust of the spot while Greg fights his insatiable desire for more time with it. Reality slips through their fingers along with their marriage as the spot takes over their living room and their lives. Maggie, now an adult, reluctantly returns for her parents' funeral to Bible Belt, Barnesville, the place where she was neglected and felt despised as a child the place she had until now, successfully avoided for 14 years. Maggie barely flinches at their untimely deaths, planning to stay in town for one night only before hightailing it back to her cozy Manchester apartment. Mere minutes after the service, however, an accident lands Maggie in the local hospital, where she must remain for months to recover. She befriends a mystical boy recovering beside her who desperately needs her help to escape the hospital and return to his true home in the woods. She's forced to choose between finally returning home herself or risking her life to help him. As a Georgia native, I'm a fiction writer by night and an immigration attorney by day. My published work consists of law review articles about human rights issues, one of which won a national writing competition in 2016, and a short story several years ago. I live in Atlanta with my husband and fur babies, Moose and Boris, in a 100-year-old historic home. My manuscript is available in part or in full upon request. Thanks so much for your time. And to you all, Cece, Carly, and Bianca, for your amazing weekly advice and helpful insight for new writers. Warm regards, Brittany. All right. My thoughts on this credit letter. It is very well written, well organized, well structured. Great job. The writer did a phenomenal job here. I got title, I got genre, I got word count. I will say, and this is something I recently learned when you mentioned trigger warning, suicide and miscarriage, very lovely editor. I'll only mention her first name because I don't know if she wants to be mentioned. Her name is Amanda, told me that we should be using content note because it's just a less triggering, haha, term. So, something to think about, we might want to use content note. And if anyone is listening to this and thinking, oh gosh, I queried CC and I used trigger warning. That is okay. I am fine with it. It is all about getting better, right? That's what we want to do in life. So I am... Curious about whose POVs we're getting. So I'm assuming Krista and Maggie, and I'm, you know, fairly certain about that. But I guess maybe it could be Greg's too. I don't know. The second pair, the first paragraph, first plot paragraph gave equal attention to Greg, I think. Um, But it does start with Krista. So I'm fairly convinced it's Krista. I actually got the Canterville ghost vibes here, which is a totally different thing because it's very humorous. So I know this isn't humorous, but the spot reminded me of the Canterville ghost. In terms of the plot paragraph, I would clarify that the spot is giving Greg a pleasant reaction right off the bat. I was not I was super confused by that because, you know, an emotional reaction that shoots up his arm and into his chest. He can't explain driving to obsession. That's very vague. Obsession about what? I have no idea. I then I kind of understood that the obsession was about the spot, but it just, you know, I need to compress that and clarify that, because by the time we get to the end of the paragraph, and I learned that you know all Greg wants to do is be around the spot, I was confused. So clarify that right from the beginning. And then in terms of the other paragraph, the other second plot paragraph, I really love the idea of someone coming home. This is a trope I adore. Person who promised she would never return home has to return home because of external pressure. I love this trope. I, however, got felt totally lost by the very last sentences of the second plot paragraph. So the bis- mystical boy, she'd be friends who has to return to the woods. Like that just feels like it's coming out of left field. And I'm assuming it's not in the story. I'm assuming there's a connection there, but can we clarify that connection? Cause I got confused and I just want to say babies, the fur babies. I love fur babies. Whenever I read about fur babies, I have to say the word baby or babies plural. So this is what I'm doing now.
1: Awesome, Cece. Uh, A book that I think you'll enjoy is Lana Harper's Paybacks to the Witch. I've interviewed her for the podcast that's coming up soon, and that's a returning home witchy kind of trope. Okay, will you tell us about those opening pages? Yes, and I will also write down that recommendation
2: because I always want more books. Chapter one, essentially the protagonist, I'm guessing this is Maggie, I'm pretty sure he says her name later, but I actually don't know, is packing her bags because she has to return home. We understand this is something she doesn't want to do, but because of social obligation, she has to, there's a great line that actually addresses that. The fact that, you know, she doesn't want to come home, but it's one of those things that she can't escape. The line is, but this is one of those things. I'd be a horrible person if I didn't go by any conceivable metric. And I think everyone can relate to the pull of social familial obligations. There's a weird dynamic between the protagonist and Scott. You know, Scott kind of hovers around, kind of makes comments that sort of like she's packing this pajamas that, that are like warm, like sweats that are really warm. And he questions that. He goes, why would you pack sweats for Georgia in August? And then she pretends like she isn't packing the sweats, but when he leaves the room, she does. You know, the reason I'm mentioning that is because that threw me off. I'm wondering whether her dynamic with Scott is actually that important to the story. Because if we're focusing on it right in the beginning, I assume that it is. And if it is, we just need more clarification. I don't get if he's an annoying, needy person or if he's like suspicious and controlling. This is not made clear and it should be unless the confusion is intentional. If it is intentional, keep it. I would recommend a point of view stamp to which Carly should sing the jingle, you know, but not timestamp point of view stamp, because I don't know whose point of view we're in. And I know it's dual based on the query letter. I would also recommend a pass on writing on the line level. There's a bit of repetition. Like the first paragraph has corner twice. It just felt distracting. I don't think you need it. It wasn't like a good repetition, like an echo. It was more distracting. Myself is repeated later down on the pages and very close together, breathes as well. So at a line level, I do think this needs work. There are tons and tons and tons of great descriptions attached to emotions, which I love, but the descriptions were quite long. So I think you should compress this. I'm typically not a fan of scenes where the character is in front of the mirror describing herself. This author does it really well. Like the writing is strong, but... I don't think it belongs in the first five pages. It's all about real estate, right? Like sometimes you write scenes and passages and paragraphs that work really well, but they don't necessarily belong in the beginning. In my opinion, that's what the descriptions, that's a fair uh, assessment of the descriptions here. I don't think you need it right now. Small note, don't use quotation marks for text messages and use a different font. Bianca has recommended a great font for that. And avoid rhetorical questions. And as a final, final note, because I know that I've been yammering, as a final note, think about the relationship between Scott and the protagonist. It's coming across as creepy right now.
1: And I don't know if that's intentional or not. And I'm confused about that. Awesome, Cece, thank you. Right, so for our listeners, let us know what you think of our new format. We're trying to get in as many of your queries as possible because we're getting hundreds a week and, we, and we're and we trying to get through them as, as much as we can. And we find that Carly and Cece tend to be in agreement most of the time. Anyway, it's not often we have arguments on the podcast. So uh, we're hoping to get through more queries this way, but let us know what you think. All right, now let's move on to today's guest. Before we go to today's guest, this just a reminder that CC has a course coming up on the 4th of November at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's called Writing Emotion, How to Weave Emotion into Your Story. Go to Cece's Instagram page to find the link there to book for that course.
0: rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
1: Today's guest grew up shuttling back and forth between Jakarta and Singapore and sees both cities as her homes. She has a master's degree from Oxford University, though she has yet to figure out a way of saying that without sounding obnoxious. She's currently living back in Jakarta on the same street as her parents and about 700 meddlesome aunties. When she's not tearing out her hair over her latest work in progress, she spends her time baking and playing FPS games and also being a mom to her two kids. It's my pleasure to welcome Jesse Q. Sutanto. Jesse, welcome to the show. What a joy to chat to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how much I loved Dial A for Aunties and it isn't really my genre. It's not my go-to genre. And my agent and I were actually (laughs) chatting a few minutes ago and she said to tell you, how much she loved it as well and rom-coms are also not they're also not her genre and she absolutely loved it so uh, you've got a whole bunch of people converted to (laughs) rom-com just for Mm -hmm. our listeners out there the story for me I would have pitched it as a kind of weekend at Bernie's but with the rom-com element to it I'm gonna ask you how you pitched it but I also want to know Jesse because when I researched you I thought this was your debut novel but I see that there was another Mm -hmm. novel published in the same year, but just a few months before. So could you take us Mm -hmm. through kind of your, your journey to publication?
3: Oh my gosh. So my journey to publication was so long and twisty. So I had written eight books before I sold a single one. And that was my fifth book, which was The Obsession, which is a YA suspense about a stalker. So it's actually a straight up suspense. There's no, it's, it's not, it's very dark. And while I was kind of shopping it, I, I got this idea for, you know, kind of like a more lighthearted story. And that turned out to be Dal A for Antis, but that didn't sell until much later. So so yeah, it took me a, a long time, a really long, long time, like 10 years,
1: basically, to to get published. That's amazing. I, I love hearing, I don't like hearing about struggle, but I love hearing mm-hmm. about authors who just persevered because it's so easy to just give up and say, you know, I know authors who mm-hmm. after the first novel, they get all these rejections and then they give up. Yeah. So, so take us through those first five books in those 10 years. What were you doing each time that you think you were doing wrong and that you learned from to get to the point where you were able to sell that first book?
3: So the first book I <laughs> (laughs) wrote, it took me like three years to write it, because I was under the impression that writing had to be like a lone journey and a very tortured one. (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of feel like that's kind of the traditional way that I kind of learned that, you know, writers wrote in solitude without anyone, and and they had to be very... And they had to be miserable while writing. And so that was my first book. I, I was all of those things. But I somehow made friends along the way. And one of them uh, introduced me to NaNoWriMo. And she was like, let's try doing it. And I was like, what? But that's not art. But she was like, no, no, but let's, let's just try it, you know. And so my <laughs> second book I wrote during NaNoWriMo. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, writing fast actually is really fun and very refreshing. And so I learned to do that with consecutive books. I, I wrote them all really fast, but really messy. And it wasn't until uh, I want to say like my seventh book where I kind of learned to write fast but neat, you know, where i I had a very clear plot. I knew what I was doing. The book wasn't an, an entire mess. When I finally wrote Del A for Anties, which was my ninth book, it, it was very clear to me like what the story needs, you know, when I needed like a catalyst, when I needed a twist or a surprise or a humorous beat. I had learned all of those things from my previous books. I I only hope that most other writers don't need to write eight books to get to that <laughs> point. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, be there's, that
1: much. <laughs> there's so much there that you know I want to break down so the first one is I mean mm-hmm. yes it is hilarious how we tend to think that writers we need to be up in this miserable flea-bitten attic in mm-hmm. Paris yeah. starving yeah. not knowing anyone yeah. or having any friends so that we can yeah. or so in that a we cabin can, in the woods yes yeah. Th- yeah there's always something like that in order to write and mm-hmm. yes writing doesn't have to be so solitary and uh, for mm-hmm. our listeners who've never done NaNoWriMo, Jesse? could you just take them over the ins and outs of RIMO as how you did it? So NaNoWriMo
3: is National Novel Writing Month, where the, the goal is to write 50,000 words in a month in November. And uh, when I first found out about it, I was like, oh, great. So what do you Uh, win at the end of it and my friend was like nothing you win your novel like that you wrote a novel I was like oh that's that's not much is it (laughs) now now I'm like you know oh my god that's amazing that's an amazing prize but at at that time I really was like oh so you don't even win anything
1: (laughs) I can see you're a fellow you're you're a fellow a type personality who's very competitive (laughs) yeah Yeah, I was like, there wasn't a medal.
3: Um, And she was like, no, well, you know, we'll put together and we will check in with each other at the end of the day to kind of, you know, make sure like, oh yeah, we've done our, our word count for the day. That was, that was the key, you know, to kind of building this habit of writing every day, no matter how I was feeling. Because I used to think like, oh, I needed to feel very inspired mm-hmm. to be able to write. But because of NaNoWriMo, I was like, oh no, I really just need to write uh, whether or not I feel inspired. And that's how I write now. I, yeah. I don't wait for
1: inspiration. Yeah, because I mean, professional writers say that inspiration comes when you put your bum in the chair. It's uh, yeah. it, you've got to train inspiration to show up for you, not the not the other way around. And I'm not sure, you know, how the nanorama worked where you were, but I know. Mm -hmm. I did NaNoWriMo a few years ago um, and obviously this was before COVID when the world was normal Mm -hmm. and I know that Mm -hmm. in Toronto there were a whole bunch of NaNoWriMo groups that you could join Mm -hmm. whereby Mm -hmm. you could meet downtown in a Starbucks for an hour yeah. and everyone would just say hi to each other, sit down and write together and then leave. And it was just mm-hmm. like about the accountability. And I know there were a whole bunch of forums where people could chat mm-hmm. to other people and just get that mm-hmm. sense of community. But it was great that you were getting that from your friend who you were doing the writing with. Mm-hmm. Did she? Did, did you two yeah. ever critique each other's work or not really?
3: Sort of. So she was in South Africa at the time uh, and I was in Oxford. England and so we couldn't really meet up but we would actually uh, go to a cafe Uh, I would go to a cafe in Oxford and she would go to one where she was and we would be like let's go and then we would write and the first one to reach 500 words was like I win you suck Um, (laughs) yeah and it was so great you know I I didn't know that there were meetings happening like in Oxford I'm sure that they there were but I was still kind of stuck in that uh, mindset of like oh you know I'm a special artiste and I write alone
0: that's so (laughs) now I'm like so
3: jealous right because I'm like oh my god I I would kill to to be able to like show up you know to one of those meetings and just be like hi yeah let's start writing because it's such a wonderful it must be such a wonderful atmosphere
1: yeah and also it's just people Um, expecting you to kind of be there and to show up and Mm -hmm. so you're you're accountable etc etc is your friend South African because I'm South African or did they just happen to be in South Africa at the time no she is she is South African
3: um but I I know that she moved to uh, London like two years ago but but she was like born and raised in South Africa
1: oh wonderful something that you said that you learned was by the time Mm -hmm. you got to dial A for aunties was the structure knowing when a story needed a Mm -hmm. twist or when it needed this or when it needed that so by that point was it instinctual for you to do that or along the way while you were learning how to write did you study different story structures like save the cat or the three-act story structure
3: Yeah, exactly. That's such a wonderful question. I love all these questions you're asking, by the way. (laughs) So I actually tried a lot of different methods. Um, I tried the snowflake method and it really did not work for me. I tried Save the Cat. It didn't quite work for me. I I tried the um, three act. Uh, I tried a lot. And the one that did work for me was Ginkgo App. And Ginkgo is actually, it actually uses Save the Cat as like beat sheets but what it does differently is that it breaks them up into like little note cards uh and for some reason even though it's basically safe, the cat ginkgo was what kind of helped everything kind of fall into place for me and so now i use ginkgo to outline everything and when i was outlining galley for aunties, i was like oh, okay so now we need the catalyst you know according to ginkgo we need the, the catalyst and what it means and then now we need like you know things to keep getting worse and the bad guys are closing in and stuff yeah. like that so so that that is what i
1: use now that that's amazing and it, it definitely showed in the story because it was a real page turner. There was so much to keep you reading. And it was also just hilarious. I mean, I was sitting at a friend's cottage while I was reading it. And I was laughing constantly to the point where he eventually <laughs> said, I mean, I don't even have my copy of the book with me now because I left it for him at the cottage and he was <laughs> loving it as well. And he's also, he's also not a rom-com uh, person, but he was also mm-hmm. really, really enjoying it. So um, yeah. can you take us a bit through, there were so many hilarious. hilarious misunderstandings in terms of the culture etc so can you tell our listeners a bit about the premise of the story
3: okay so the the starting premise is a young wedding photographer is set up on a blind date by her mother her very well-meaning mother the blind date turns out to be the date from hell and she accidentally kills him as you do (laughs) (laughs) And then she has to get the help of her mom and her very meddlesome aunties to get rid of the body while also catering to the wedding of a
1: billionaire. (laughs) So that's the the premise. So on the podcast, we we have agents who read query letters and who read the first five pages to critique them and help our listeners go out with, with query. And we're always saying that something that in real life that would be Kind of hard to go through, or that might be stressful, you need to escalate infection. It needs to be that much more. So, and you did that so well. So, you would think, okay, having this date that you almost killed and whose body you kind of mm-hmm. have to get rid of would be stressful enough. But th- what you did was you took that and then you mm-hmm. elevated it even more because it's the biggest socialite wedding that their company is doing. And so they're having to get rid of the body and everything in the middle of doing all all of this stuff. So it it was a Mm -hmm. really good masterclass in how to really escalate things very, very much. (laughs) Can you tell us like a bit about diving into, you know, your background and your culture to to write the novel and to find the humor in so much of it? Oh my gosh, that...
3: I have to thank my husband for it because so my
1: husband is English
3: and we moved to Indonesia about like seven years ago and one day he was like you need to write about your family because they're insane and I was like what no my family is just so boring it's so a normal and he was like oh no, no 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 no, like trust me there's nothing normal about them you need to write about them and he, <laughs> and he said it, you know, pointing out to me like all the ways that they were just not normal, and I was like, "Oh, you you kind of have a point there." And so I I tried to write like a family oriented story, but it it just uh it was kind of hitting too close to home. Like the drama, you know, was kind of stressing me out because it was just surreal Mm. and so I kind of shelved it uh and it wasn't until I was like oh well what about like if I throw in something surreal there you know like a dead body um then it just came together and I was like oh my gosh this is hilarious not too too dramatic like soap opera drama And I can distance myself enough from it to actually write about it. And I was really enjoying it. And it came so naturally because all of the humor was based on, you know, my actual family and like how they would react in that situation. Although all of them were like, no, 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 if we were in that situation, we would
1: call the (laughs) cop. You know, that's boring. (laughs) And and that's that's really boring. You don't want that in your novel. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Another friend who I got to read it, and I'm going to give her a shout out because she's a regular listener of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Hi, Carmela. Carmela finished it in like two days and then she messaged me and she said, when is the sequel coming out? Um, The sequel is coming out uh, in March of uh, next year. And can I ask when you sold this book, did you sell it as part of a series or is it that the book just did so well that the publisher then wanted you to write a sequel. So we we sold it as a two-book series. It's so amazing because I wonder if your publisher expected this to be such a big hit. Because for me, it's always interesting to see that publishers will buy a book and they kind of expect it to be a little bit quieter or they're not mm-hmm. quite sure how big it's going to be. And then they can be hugely surprised when the book just yeah. absolutely takes off. So what was your take on it? Do you think it was a bit of a surprise hit or were they expecting it to do so well?
3: So... So we we sold it to the publisher and then literally like the week after it blew up and we had like the whole film, you know, Hollywood frenzy and oh, um, amazing. Yeah, and then we it was auction like, you know, there were different studios bidding for it and it became very fierce and we finally sold to Netflix. And so I think I think that the publishers were, were not expecting that kind of excitement from Hollywood and so I think that was a very pleasant surprise for them. Like, oh my yeah. gosh, you know, like uh it, it was a pleasant surprise for everyone.
1: Yeah, <laughs> were they were the other publishers who turned it down or was it that the first publisher who saw it bought it?
3: So it was submitted to 17, I think, 17 publishers and um, in the end, four publishers bid for it, which is so interesting because that means that 13 of them turned it down, you know?
1: <laughs> ah, And you know what? Like, I think those yeah. people are now wanting to kick their own butts because you know, they uh, I so. look at, look at the huge success this is and look, it's going to be, and once it's on Netflix, I mean, you're going to reach even mm-hmm. a huger audience who'll then go and buy the book after they've watched the show. So that's absolutely amazing. And you know, for our listeners, that's something that I say time and again is publishing is mm-hmm. so subjective, you know, one mm-hmm. book can do phenomenally well, but look, there were 13 people who turned that book down and who are now yeah. I'm sure are hugely regretting it.
3: Yeah, I I always love these stories of uh, books that were kind of you know rejected by most uh, people and then go on to find success. Uh, I actually think like my my YA suspense The Obsession was kind of like an even big, bigger surprise in, in a way because it was literally rejected by every publisher uh, except for one. And then it kind of, it went on to find its own little success in a way. It was like, my publisher recently told me that it was the biggest paperback release that they've had ever. And I was like, what? Wow. It was was, uh, submitted to like maybe over 30 publishers and
1: they all rejected it. When it first came out, it it didn't do that well. And then when it came out in paperback, it did well? Is that what you were saying? Um, No, they they only released it
3: in paperback because I guess maybe they thought like it wasn't even worth a hardback. I, I don't know, but... They released it in paperback and Walmart had it. And then it became such a huge hit at Walmart and Walmart increased the scope, you know, by like wow. thousands of stores uh, nationwide. And I, I was not expecting that at all because it was such a tiny deal. I was kind of expecting it to kind of, you know, sink into
1: oblivion. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's also hugely encouraging because, you know, we yeah. tend to think, okay, if it's a small deal, it's not going to do mm-hmm. very well, you know, and then look at the surprise. Yeah. there so you've had surprise after surprise so jesse like our last question before we're going to have to let you go because we've Mm -hmm. uh, our time's almost up and it's been so amazing chatting with you could you tell our listeners how you got your agent so after each of those five books you wrote did you keep pitching to agents and kept getting rejected when was it at what point did you land your agent and how did you do that
3: so i actually had good good luck with agents I actually got agented with my first ever book but um they didn't you know manage to sell it and then my second book wasn't something that they were interested in so I left and then you know I I had Agents that were so toxic. So this is something I I feel so strongly about. Like, I hope that writers listening to this realize that, you know, their time is really worthy and that they're worthy of like respect, you know, from their agents. Because I I actually signed with a couple of agents who, you know, would tell me like, oh, yeah, we'll get you notes by the end of the week. And then the end of the week would come and there were no notes. And then, you know, before I knew it, it was like five months have passed and there were still no notes. And they were basically kind of just wasting my time. I was with them for like a year and a half over a year. And, you know, we were still not ready to submit to publishers because they were just being so slow. I finally left them. So I was, I was really lucky that my first agent was willing to, you know, take another chance on me. He was the one who sold the obsession, um, but, you know, unfortunately, we parted ways for other reasons, but he, he was always really, really decent. And uh, after that, I actually signed with my current agent for my children's book, uh, which is uh, not out yet. <laughs> That's really weird because, like, the children's book actually sold before Dal A for Aunties*, but it's not going to come out <laughs> until after until after the sequel to Dal A for Aunties* will come out.
1: Where <laughs> this is publishing, it work it moves at a glacial yes. pace. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then yeah, did that agent so... <laughs> present you for Dial A for Aunties as well? Or yes. did you do different yeah, agents?
3: no, she did. She So when I had the call with her, I was like, look, I have, you know, my next book is going to be an adult book. Are you OK with it? And she was like, yes, you know, I love the sound of it. So she was the one who made the magic happen with Dial A for Aunties. So it was just, you know, so serendipitous and I have such a strong opinion, you know, with with agents when when it comes to like writers waiting for agents, you know, I'm always like, you know, if an agent is if your agent is making you wait longer than, you know, four to six weeks for notes, yeah. that's just not right. Yeah. um you know like have more confidence in yourself and your work and yeah. you know don't don't let because I feel like the power structure is so imbalanced oh like, yeah we talk uh, about
1: that yeah. all the time on the podcast how mm-hmm. messed up the power dynamic is you know so yeah. 100% agree yeah
3: yeah like we we're just so scared right of like kind of annoying our agents or whatever but um you know they're, they're, the both and- agents. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. But there are agents out there that will, you know, respect you and come back to you in a very timely manner. So, you know, please don't like settle for agents that keep you waiting for like months
1: and months and months yeah my big thing has always been communication you know if you say you're mm-hmm. going to get back to me by the end of the week and then you can't yes. for whatever reason that's yeah. fine just be in touch and go yes. I know I was meant to be in touch with you at the end of the week yes. but x y and z is preventing me and so uh, this is the new deadline but like you say if you get told yeah oh I'll come back to you by this and you don't hear anything and you don't hear anything that's mm-hmm. incredibly frustrating
3: yes Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
1: Oh, Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I know our listeners are absolutely Mm going to love this episode. I know they're going to love the book. So for our listeners who are, you know, especially writing rom-coms, you have to get this book. For our listeners who aren't writing rom-coms, just get the book to have a look at the pacing, (laughs) you know, from a pacing level, just because so many of our listeners struggle with structure and they kind of have their inciting incidents and their key event, but then they're second act sort of fizzles out. And this is really a masterclass in constantly upping the stakes. You know, on the podcast, we're always saying, what's at stake for the main character? What do they stand to lose? You need to keep torturing them. You need to keep upping the stakes. And Jesse did such a phenomenal job of that. So uh, get the book, just read it to, even if this isn't your genre, just to, to learn from somebody who really knows how to keep that pacing and tension going. Jesse, I can't wait to read the next one out in March. And we 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 hope to have you back on the podcast when the second one comes out.
3: Thank you so much. This was so fun. And I'm so happy to be doing a podcast
1: that's like aimed at writers. So thank you. Thank you, Jesse. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com. And I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup